Christmas with your family or friends. Of course, with Christ you can't miss. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 14 this morning. In this chapter we are taken through the tribulation period to the very end of it, and John gets a great vision, great vision of the Lamb. Father, we open our hearts, not just pages of your word, but we open our hearts to the truths that your Holy Spirit has seen fit to place at the very end, the capstone of New Testament truth. And Lord, I pray that our hearts would really rejoice in the truths that are found, that we might exemplify those who are found in it as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's awfully difficult to brush up against evil for any period of time. It blotches the way you think. It changes the way you think. It's difficult to see, to experience, to hear wickedness going on around you. You could ask C.S. Lewis about that. C.S. Lewis wrote this book called The Screwtape Letters, which is a very interesting book. It's a book where he places himself sort of in the position of the devil. Can you imagine how difficult it would be to think that way for a long period of time? The chief character is Screwtape. Screwtape is sort of the senior demon, the tempter who teaches his nephew how to ruin people's lives. And uh, before the book, his little preface, after it's all done, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote about his book, and he said, I never wrote with less enjoyment, though it was easy to twist one's mind into a diabolical attitude. It was not fun, or not for long. The strain produced a sort of spiritual cramp. The work into which I had to project myself while I spoke through screw tape was all dust, grit, thirst, and itch. Every trace of beauty, freshness, and geniality had to be excluded. It almost smothered me before I was done." Well, with that in mind, think how John felt. Think what John has seen in these visions. Think what John has heard up to this point. Uh, think of just the last couple of chapters, seeing the chief character of the hell of the tribulation period, the dragon himself, Satan appearing as this dragon wanting to destroy everything God loves, hating the Jewish people, hating the believers throughout history and in the tribulation period, seeing a beast rise up out of the sea having seven heads, ten horns, another beast rising up out of the land who looks like a lamb but speaks like a dragon. All of the horrible things that John has seen, all of the wickedness, it must have worn on him over a period of time. It could wear on anyone, even if you are an apostle like John. I'm sure John wanted to change the channels, but he couldn't channel surf in this vision. He was fixed on what God had shown him. That's why chapter 14 is like a breath of fresh air. It's a, an encouraging infomercial as God takes John through it all to the very end of the tribulation period, right before the millennium. And we have a picture of the Lamb, who is the shepherd at the same time, shepherding his people, the Jewish remnant, 144,000 standing on Mount Zion. Now what this shows us is that 
even though it will be very bad during the day of the Lord, the tribulation period, that last seven-year period on earth, Jesus said it was the worst of any period of human history. Even though that's true, the ultimate winner will not be the dragon, the first beast, or the second beast. It will be the Lamb, God's Lamb, God's Son. And He will stand on Mount Zion. He'll take the 144,000 Jews that we read about a few chapters ago, and not one of them will be lost. All of them will be standing with Him in the end. Last week, somebody at this service told me after the service a story about a telemarketing firm that called a house. You probably know what that's like. They're fond these days of calling you and trying to sell you stuff. And this one telemarketing firm called, and on the other end at the house, a little girl answered in a whisper, Hello. And the person in the telemarketing firm said, uh, Yes, uh, young lady, is your mother home? She said, Yes, she's home, but she's busy. Okay, well, great. Listen, is your father home? Yes, daddy's home, but daddy's busy too. Well, that's fine, young lady. Is anyone else there? Yes, the police are here too. They're busy with mommy and daddy. Um, anyone beside the police and your mommy and daddy there? Yes, the fire department's here. And the fireman's busy with mommy and daddy, too. And now the curiosity was piqued, and the telemarketing representative said, Well, what is your mom and dad and the police and the fire department all doing there that keeps them so busy? She said, They're looking for me. <laughs> she had the phone in the closet. They thought she was lost. Well, the glorious truth is that at the end of the tribulation, everyone that God has sealed will be with Him. Not one will be lost. You won't have the Lamb looking uh, for uh, His own. You won't have the great shepherd of the sheep looking for any lost members of His flock. They will all be there. Let's read it together, verses 1 through 5. I looked, and behold, a Lamb standing on Mount Zion with Him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. We notice in verse 1, He looked and saw. We notice in verse 2, He heard. And then in verse 4, there's a description. And that's how these verses are outlined. He sees, he hears, and he understands. So verse 1, sights are seen, verse 2, and verse 3, sounds are heard. And then in verse 4 and 5, uh, a standard of living, a standard of truth 
uh, of these 144,000 is described. Let's look in verse 1. Let's notice what he sees. I looked and I saw, behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion. On center stage, the first one that captures his attention is not a beast this time with seven heads and ten horns, not a lamb-like beast that speaks like a dragon, not a dragon, but now a lamb. Who is the lamb? It's Jesus Christ. How do we know? Because a personal pronoun is given to him. It talks about him, his father. And the parallel passage of chapter 7, which talks about those who are sealed with the seal of God. Here it talks about those who are sealed with the seal of the Lamb's Father on their foreheads. This is the Lamb of God. This is the Messiah. This is the Messiah that's been predicted through all of history. Standing at the end times, it's Jesus Christ standing upon Mount Zion. Now at this point, it's refreshing after all that we have read so far, to see a lamb, to see Jesus standing, we have seen the false worship of the beast. We have seen the false prophet. We have seen those who have worshipped the beast and the false prophet and been taken in by this false system during the tribulation period. How refreshing to see the lamb standing with his own after it's all over, this projection through all the evil to the very end when the Lamb has now come back to the earth and He stands on Mount Zion. Chapter 12 told us about the spiritual battle that began in the creation when God created Satan. Satan was cast to the earth. We saw what Satan hated. He hates everything God loves. Chapter 13 brought us into the tribulation period when wicked rulers, the Antichrist, who is the political ruler, the false prophet, who is the religious ruler, will bring the world and subject the world to a false system. Chapter 14 takes us from the dark underside to the light topside. It's the same story, the same truth. This is, though, at the very end of it, and it's the good side of it. Compare chapter 13 with chapter 14. In chapter 13, there is Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and there's the mark of the beast. In chapter 14, there's God, there's Christ, truth, genuine worship, and the mark of God. It's in direct contrast. This is from Satan's angle. This is when it's all over. The Lamb has finally prevailed. Now, why is Jesus pictured as a lamb? Well, it could be that it's a contrast to the dictatorial, hateful, authoritative rule of the beast. Here's a beast with seven heads and ten horns. And on the other hand, there's this docile lamb. Not a lamb-like creature like the second beast. It's the lamb in humility, that docile servant leadership. But more than that, the lamb is the symbol of Jesus Christ because of sacrifice. If you were Jewish and you thought of a lamb, you'd think of the temple. You wouldn't think of humility or some docile creature as much as you would think of a docile creature being killed for sin. All the way back in Exodus, God said, take a lamb at Passover. Kill the lamb. Take the blood of the lamb and put the blood on the lintels and the doorpost. And by the blood of the lamb, you will be redeemed from death. Every day in the temple, lambs were brought. Hands were laid upon lambs. Blood was shed from the lambs. 
and the blood atoned for the sins of Israel. So the Lamb speaks of atonement. And that's how John the Baptist introduced Jesus Christ when at the Jordan River Jesus comes walking to him. He said to the crowd, Look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so Jesus appears as the sacrificial Lamb at the end of the age. Notice where the significant place is Mount Zion. I cannot underscore the importance of this enough. For us who are Gentile believers, Mount Zion, it's another symbol, it's another mountain. But if you were Jewish, especially if you were a Messianic Jew, your heart would leap at this because every Jew in history has looked forward to the time when the Messiah would return and rule from the literal Mount Zion in literal Jerusalem with his people. And here he does it. It's the prediction that everything the prophets have spoken will come to pass. The Messiah will come, God's Lamb, Jesus Christ. And he will one day stand upon Mount Zion as Isaiah, as Jeremiah, as the minor prophets predicted. If you were to go to Jerusalem today, we could point to Mount Zion. Geographically, it's a, a little hill. It's not a mountain. We think of mountains in America. It's not like the Rocky Mountains. It's a little hill between two valleys in Jerusalem. There's the Kidron Valley. There's the Tyropian Valley. And sandwiched in between is Mount Zion. It's the place where the temple once stood. It's the place where the temple will stand during the tribulation period again. It's the place where Jerusalem sprung up. It was called the stronghold of Zion when the Jebusites owned it before David took it over. Then David built the city of Jerusalem on it. Solomon built a temple on Mount Zion. And eventually the word Zion became a term that described the entire city of Jerusalem, not just a hill. In Psalm 48, Zion is described, but the whole city is considered. It says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of his holiness, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth, is Mount Zion in the sides of the north. It's the city of the great king. That's how it's described, the city of Zion. Sometimes the prophets use the term Zion to describe the entire nation of Israel. But most often, especially in the Psalms, most often Zion is the name given to Jerusalem and to the nation of Israel during the Messianic era, the time that the Messiah comes and sets up his kingdom upon the earth, the millennial kingdom. For instance, Isaiah 33 predicts, The Lord is exalted. He dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. That hasn't happened yet. It will one day. Psalm 2, Yet, says God, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Forty times in the Psalms, David used it to speak of the Messianic era when the Messiah rules geographically from Jerusalem. Now, look who's with him. There's a significant group of people. We've already been introduced to them. With him, 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. Who are the 144,000? They're not Jehovah Witnesses, like the Jehovah Witnesses say. They're not Armstrongites, like the Worldwide Church of Christ said, or Seventh-day Adventists. Everybody likes to say, I'm the 144,000. I don't want to be them. 
I want to be like them now, but I don't want to be them. They are Jews. Chapter 7 says they are Jews. They're from the tribes of Israel. And just so no one will get confused and put some spiritual meaning, God tells the names of the 12 tribes. So if somebody says, well, I'm a member of the 144,000, I always ask them, what tribe are you from? Because they are delineated in chapter 7. These are representative Jews. These are Messianic Jews who are preserved from the beginning to the very end of the day of the Lord, the Great Tribulation period. They are sealed. That is, they're protected. God puts a mark on them and protects them. It's always been a little humorous to me how that so many Christians get so carried away with the mark of the beast. This is the important mark, the mark of God. Everybody goes, 666, what could it mean? And they just spend endless hours and write volumes on what the mark of the beast is when the mark of the beast is a copy of this. At the beginning of the tribulation we saw in chapter 7, God puts a mark on his own. The Antichrist comes along, Satan comes along, typical of Satan, nothing original, says, I'll copy that, I'll mock that, I'll mimic that. And he puts the mark of the beast as we saw in chapter 13. So this is 144,000 Jews. We've already mentioned them in chapter 7, and now we see them at the end of the tribulation, right at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign on the earth. Jesus has come back, the Lamb is standing on Mount Zion, and they're with him, 144,000 of the tribes of Israel. Now some have said, well, God will preserve the church through the tribulation. No, he won't. He will preserve the church from the tribulation. He will preserve 144,000 Jews through the tribulation. They are miraculously sealed. They will come out the other end unscathed and untouched. And God has done that in history, in the past. God has preserved his people. God kept the firstborn in Egypt through all of the plagues. God kept the three Hebrew children in the midst of the fire as they stood there because they didn't worship the beast or the image of Nebuchadnezzar. God kept them through it, and God will do it again. Now go back to uh, chapter 6 for just a moment, especially if you haven't been with us through all of our studies. It's hard to just jump right in in any one of the studies in Revelation. In chapter 6, you remember it's a, a story of the seals, this judgment scroll being opened, the title deed of the earth, and judgments are read and pronounced upon the earth, and they're so bad. Earth becomes such a living hell that a question is posed at the very end. Look, verse 17. For the great day, the word mega, it's a mega day, mega wrath. The great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? That's a good question. Who can survive this? Who on earth will be able to be sustained through it all to live? After all, a third are killed, another fourth are killed, over half the world will be wiped out during this time, plague after plague, judgment after judgment. Who's going to survive? And as soon as that question is asked, it's answered in the very next chapter. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, 
that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. And then they are enumerated. So we saw them at the beginning of the tribulation period, saved, sealed. Now we see them in chapter 14. Jesus has come back. He's on Mount Zion. It's the very end, telescopic view of the very end. And they're standing with Jesus Christ on Mount Zion with God's mark on them, God's seal of ownership. God is saying, I've marked them. They're mine. You might be able to destroy the earth, these angels who are pouring out the judgments of God, the Antichrist who seeks to kill every godly person. But these you cannot touch. You cannot harm. They're immune. They're protected. So what an encouragement to the reader when we read 144,000. It doesn't say, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 139,500. Or 143,002, if you have been lost. Every single one who began has ended. Every single one is a conqueror, a victor, with the lamb at the end of the tribulation period. It's an amazing group of people. It's amazing because all of them, all 144,000, fall into the category of the description of verse 4 and 5. An incredible force, loyal, godly. Uh, they would sacrifice their whole life to preach the gospel, to be a witness. They're undefiled, it says. They speak the truth all the time. They're God's witnesses. What an incredible force to have on earth during the worst time of history. When people might say, how could people get saved during the tribulation period? Well, think of 144,000 like this. To put it in perspective, it's currently estimated that there are about 50,000 missionaries on earth right now. Triple that. And multiply into that this level of commitment. And you have the idea. 144,000 of the tribes of Israel. It's a triumphant group. It is a group that I don't think has ever existed quite like it. Now, there have been people like Joseph, Daniel, Paul, Deborah, godly people, but they're usually the exception. There's so much the exception, the Bible writes a chapter about them or a book about them. But to have 144,000 Daniels, Josephs, Deborahs, and Pauls at the same time with this level of commitment miraculously preserved, it's going to be an awesome force. So that's what he sees. Let's now notice what he hears, the sounds that are heard. Verse 2, And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, like the voice of loud thunder. This could be the voice of Jesus. You say, why do you say that? I say that because in chapter 1, it's the same description. John sees Jesus Christ. It's a vision of him. And the voice is like the voice of many waters, like Niagara Falls. God doesn't always speak in a whisper. Sometimes it's unmistakable. 
At Sinai, it says God thundered from heaven. We sung one of the worship songs today that uh, is uh, written from Psalm 29 that says, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory of God thunders. His voice breaks the cedars and shakes the wilderness. So it could be the voice of Jesus, or it could be just he hears this voice of all of the worshipers in heaven, and it is so loud it's like a waterfall or like thunder because everybody's involved in it. Secondly, he hears harpists playing their harp. And I betcha that this is where people get the idea that when we get to heaven, we're going to be sitting on our own little cloud with our own little plaque playing our own little harp. Instead of seeing the symbolism, there could be harps. It'd be great. The word harp here is literally lyre, though, not L-I-A-R, but L-Y-R-E. A lyre was a square or trapezoidal instrument made out of fine wood and metal. It had strings on it. You'd pluck them or you'd strum them like a guitar. It was used in worship. Of all of the times it is used in the Old Testament, it is associated with joy. The lyre, the harp, was used to proclaim joy in worship. Remember when Israel was in Babylon, they had no joy and they hung their harps on the willow trees because joy was absent. So Jesus Christ has come, set up his kingdom. He's reigning now on Mount Zion, 144,000 of the Jews that are with him, establishing his messianic millennial kingdom, and there is great joy in heaven. Then there are singers that are singing. It says they sang, as it were, a new song, verse 3, before the throne, before the four creatures and the elders, the 24 elders mentioned in chapters 4 and 5. It says, And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed. Notice, they were redeemed from the earth. Now, we know that heaven rejoices over redemption. Heaven gets pretty excited when a person gets saved. Uh, we might sort of lose the thrill of it. We might say, yeah, three got saved today. Twenty came forward. Heaven gets stoked. They get excited. And they get loud in their worship. And Jesus in Luke chapter 15 tells a few stories about things that are lost and found. One is a coin, the other is a sheep. And when the sheep is lost and found and the guy rejoices and tells everybody to rejoice with him because the sheep has been found, Jesus said, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Which means that if today you were to turn your life over to Jesus Christ, heaven would throw a party. They would rejoice because that which is lost is found and we ought to rejoice as well. Now, they sing a new song. It says here in verse 3, a new song before the throne. Nobody could learn it except these 144,000. We saw the new song, that phrase in chapter 5. The 24 elders sang a new song. Here, a new song is sung. It sounds like all of heaven is worshiping, but it says that only the 144,000 could learn it. Now, you could get picky as to who's singing and who's not, and I don't think it's important. I think all of heaven is singing, but nobody on earth can learn it. It's not say sing it, but can learn it, except the 144,000. 
They're the only ones that have the right to do it. They've been preserved, redeemed. You know, keep in mind, we've all been redeemed, but in a profound sense, these guys have been redeemed. After the rapture, through the persecution, through the reign of the Antichrist, and they're still standing. They've been preserved. It's a unique group of people. I heard a story this week of a number of children who had been captured by some native tribes. They had been sort of raised in their younger years out in the open in the wild. Uh, they had been recaptured and brought to the open markets so that parents could reclaim them. And so they were all lined up one day when a mother who had lost two of her children was looking among the line of kids to see if her two children were there. She didn't recognize them. They looked so different. They would grown up and she walked away weeping, thinking she hadn't found them. But just as she was turning, she started singing a hymn that was the lullaby for the children when they were just toddlers. The first line hadn't even finished when two children said, Mama! They recognized the song, though they didn't recognize her. The 144,000 will be able to learn this song because they will recognize that we've been preserved through this whole hellish period, and they'll sing it unto the Lamb. I want to apply this, however. Notice these three words, voices, harpists, singing. Shouldn't that characterize us? Shouldn't that be the characteristic response of all of God's redeemed people of all ages? Voices, harpists, or music, and singing. That we worship God in response to who God is and what God has done. How should we respond to God? What should our response be for what God has done in our life? Complaining? Should we gripe and moan? I didn't get enough. Well, this guy got more for Christmas. Or why do I have this lot in life? Think of it this way. The very worst that God would ever dish out to you in this life is far better than the very best anyone apart from Christ will ever have. And it's very natural to not gripe at God, but it's more natural as a redeemed person to worship God, to sing to God, to burst forth in praise. That's what worship is. It's a response. It's, it's not something you've got to work people into or pump them up. Come on, church, let's worship. Raise your hands. If you're a, worshiping, if you're a, a redeemed person, you're a worshiping person. It's natural. You say, well, I don't feel like it. If you wait till you feel like worshiping or serving God, you may rarely do it. The question isn't, do you feel like it? Is God worth it? Is the question, is that your proper response? It's to worship God. Folks, we sing here before every service. We close with song. We do it not because we think, okay, let's see, we have an hour. How will we fill it? Well, I guess we could preach for a little while, and, well, we could stuff it with some songs, and that'll kind of fill up an hour. It'll be a good show. We begin with worship because it's our turn. God has worked all week long, and this is the Lord's day. And the first thing we do is we worship Him. He's worth it. We praise Him. So we don't sing as a time filler for those coming late. We worship in response to what holy, gracious, loving God has done and who he is to us. And the truth is, God is not too excited about silent admirers. 
God's people should be filled with song. It is throughout the Bible from one end to the other. John Wesley put it this way, Sing lustily and with good courage. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep, but lift up your voice with strength. A.W. Tozer said, Worship is the missing jewel of the church. Is it missing in your life or is it unmistakable in your life? God's redeemed people are ready to burst forth as we see throughout this book. Well, let's finish off with the third section of this, verses 4 and 5. The standard is described. John sees, John hears, and then a description is given. A standard of life is given. God not only kept them miraculously, but they have a standard of godliness, character, purity. Notice what it is. End of verse 3, they were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they're virgins. They're the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They're redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit. They're without fault before the throne of God. Notice the standard. First of all, they're redeemed, it says. That is the basis for godly, holy, pure lifestyle and character. A real conqueror, a real winner, is one who belongs to God. You might feel to be so successful in this life. You say, I've made it without God. You're a loser. You are a loser. The real winner is the person who belongs to God, who's been redeemed from this age and belongs to God. And if you're a Christian, you belong to God. The Bible says you've been bought with a price. Now think about that next time you start planning your life. I'm going to make my plans about my future and my life. Your life is in Christ. You're talking about His property. The issue isn't what do you want to do, it's what does He want to do with you. He bought you. Here's the certificate, blood of Jesus Christ. And when you said yes to Jesus Christ, it's not like, okay God, I'll let you work some nice things for me and I'll allow you into my life. He's allowing you into His. He buys you. You belong to Him. Redemption. Secondly, it says they are virgins. And it says they're not defiled with women. Now, that, that, what does that mean? That sounds kind of odd to us. They're virgins. They haven't been defiled with women. Let me give you a couple of possibilities. A couple of interpretations. Number one, some say that the worship of the Antichrist, like the ancient cults, the worship of Baal, Ashtoreth, the ancient religions were filled so much with sensuality, sexuality, prostitutes in their worship, that the worship of the beast will include some of this sensual worship, and these 144,000 staying away from the worship system of the beast are virgins. They don't get involved in the sexual promiscuity of this cult. And the interpretation goes that they're 144,000 men. They are God's end-time preachers at the very end. That's one possibility. There's another possibility, and I tend to lean to this, and that is it doesn't necessarily refer to physical virginity, physical purity, but spiritual virginity and spiritual purity. You say, well, what right do you have to interpret that? Simply because often in the Bible, Israel was called the virgin daughter of Zion. 
in the Bible. And in the New Testament, this is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I have promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Paul was not referring to physical virginity. If he was, every married believer is out on that verse. He's speaking of the spiritual devotion to Christ. He's speaking of the fact that as a true believer, don't two-time God. Don't go out on him. Don't have an affair with the world, but be purely devoted to him. This is what James says in chapter 4, verse 4. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James uses the metaphor, adulterers and adulteresses, in a spiritual sense of those who would flirt with the world. So the 144,000 will not be involved in this satanically energized worship system of the beast. They are undefiled. They are pure in their relationship to Jesus Christ. All right, let's apply that. To stay undefiled and spiritually pure is something that all of us as Christians are called to do. And that's how we overcome that just surrender to him and to him alone. It means we don't flirt with the world. We don't have an affair on God. We don't say, Jesus, I love you, I'm surrendered to you. However, I have the right to do this, 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 and this, and this in my life. Even though you don't like that it's sinful, that's two-timing God. Philip Keller wrote many books. He was once a shepherd, said about his own flock. He said, I once owned a ewe lamb who was one of the most attractive sheep that ever belonged to me. Her body was beautiful. It was proportioned. Her head was clean, alert, well set with bright eyes. She bore sturdy lambs that matured rapidly. But in spite of all of these attractive attributes, she had one pronounced fault. She was restless. She was discontented. She was a fence crawler. This one you produced more problems for me and almost all of the rest of my flock combined. No matter what field or pasture the sheep were in, she would search all along the fences, looking for the loophole that she could crawl through and start to feed on the other side. It was not that she lacked pasturage. No sheep in the district had better grazing than mine. She was a sheep who, in spite of all that I had done to give her the very best care, wanted something else. Do you know Christians like that? Discontented where God has put them? Fence crawlers. You know, you notice them. They are around for a while. Then they leave and they feed off of the world. Then they come back and they're all sorrowful. Then they leave again. Then they come back. Then they leave again. It's almost like they've got enough of the world in them to make them not totally satisfied in Christ and just enough of Christ in them to make them not totally satisfied in the world. They're miserable wherever they're at. They haven't made a full-fledged decision or commitment. They're defiled. It's not spiritual virginity. Now, it's easy to see how this happens. The world that you live in, folks, pressures you. It's tremendous pressure. Conform to me, it says. 
These are your values. This is what is cool and hep and right and acceptable. And so to keep up and to be cool and hep and right and acceptable, you've got to do this. This is the mold. Peer pressure. Teenagers were recently asked in an interview, what do you think, as teenagers, the greatest problem that you face? Almost all of them said peer pressure. The pressure to be like the other person, like the world. Peer pressure. These don't bow to it, and they're kept. Thirdly, it says there are first fruits unto God and to the Lamb, the end of verse 4. You'll probably remember in ancient Israel, the people followed an agricultural practice that God commanded. Every year at harvest time, they'd bring the first and best of their fruits, grains, vegetables. They'd offer them to God. It was an offering of first fruits. It was not only an offering, but it indicated, here's the first, but there's more to follow. God has blessed me. He's blessed me abundantly, and so I give the first and the best to him. But it also indicates that I have all of this other stuff that will follow this first cutting of the harvest. Now, that's what the 144,000 are. They're the first saved ones in the tribulation. They're saved, they're sealed, and they probably will lead many others to Jesus Christ. Fourthly and finally, they're faultless, it says. Notice the description. Verse 5, In their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Can you imagine in a, in a time in history when there will be so much lying and deception and falsehood and false prophets and people will go, I don't, I don't know what truth is. I have no idea. You will have 144,000 who speak nothing but truth. Did you know that the ancient prophets in a few different occasions predicted that in the end times, a group of Jews will arise who have no deceit, but they speak the truth. One of them is found in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 13. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong. They will speak no lies, nor will deceit be found in their mouths. I think it's a prediction of the 144,000 Jews, the remnant of Israel, who will eventually stand on Mount Zion. Notice it does not say that they are sinless people, but they are blameless why? Because there's no such thing as sinless people. If they're sinless, they're not people. If they're people, they're not sinless. These are blameless people. They have lived a life of holiness, integrity, character. They've been miraculously preserved by God. They've been redeemed, and they have overcome the world. Now, that is the work of God in the life of every believer. Right now, in this body of flesh, you sense all of your inadequacies, all of your failures, all of the Achilles heel and weaknesses that you have. You're aware of them. But the great joy of Jesus Christ is that one day he'll present you to the Father faultless. You're already declared righteous. He'll present you, and God will declare you faultless. Jude Verse 24 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. He'll present you as a pure, chaste bride to Christ. The Associated Press ran an article some time back about the problem that Israel is facing. 
So many people are immigrating to Israel, Jews from all over the world, especially Russia. There's not enough jobs or houses for them. And some of the people immigrating, in fact, most of the Soviet Jews all have graduate, postgraduate degrees. They're scientists. They're great scholars. And you'll see them in Israel playing violins on the street just to earn a living or doing odd jobs in a restaurant. And they, they've got PhDs. So a plant has been set up outside of Jerusalem to get all these brainy guys and gals together you know, there's really no job, there's nothing to do, but let's think of something. Let's brainstorm. And you've heard the saying that necessity is the mother of invention. Well, a group of scientists under the leading of a guy named Solomon Fax, a hydrometallurgist, discovered that he can take garbage and make gold out of it. And he has found that he could take, oh, a few tons of used computer circuit boards and in a few hours extract 10 to 28 ounces of pure gold. He can take ash, he can take all of these other garbage products that are thrown out, and he can get platinum and silver out of them. From garbage to gold was the article. Great article. Brilliant. But what Solomon Fax is doing now, God has been doing since the beginning. God takes a world tainted by sin and evil, and he extracts gold out of it. He redeems people. He remakes their lives. He changes them completely. He makes them overcomers. And in the tribulation period, the world will say no to God, yes to the Antichrist, but God will raise up his gold, 144,000 undefiled virgin in their commitment to Christ. They'll be the first fruits. There will be many others, but these are the first fruits. The others will, most of them suffer martyrdom, 144,000 will be kept. Unlike any group in history, able to triumph in the midst of the most wicked culture. Now, if 144,000 can do it in the most wicked culture, even though we don't have the seal of God that would keep us immune from death or problems, certainly, by God's grace, we're able to be his gold, his overcomers, his separated ones during our culture. And one day God will present us faultless before his throne. 